Good to be here. Um, as you can see, I've worn my, uh, my best clothes this morning. I've got um, a jersey which is about, oh, I've had for 10 years now, um, but I got it second hand. And so it's got quite a few holes in it, as you can see. Um, I had, used to have a husky, and uh, she used to love you know, pulling on my jersey and ripping it. It's been, it's been uh, darned or uh, sewn back up with wool, if you don't know what darn means. Most people don't these days, um, many times. And I've, I've also worn these jeans. Now, the irony is these jeans are ripped, but they were bought like that, and probably the most expensive thing that I've got in my wardrobe. I don't know why. Um, but my jandals are only $2, and the T-shirt underneath is only $2 as well, and I got that in America recently. So <clears throat> I tried uh, as best I could to dress humbly. But it also, it also happens to be clothing that I'm very comfortable in. And that's really the theme this morning of uh, 1 Peter 5, verses 5 to 7. So let's get into that. And uh, I'm just trying to get used to the new monitor at the back there. I keep wanting to look up here. But um, let's get into that. And uh, I think first we should pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we gather together this morning, we don't need to pretend. We don't need to dress up spiritually. All we need is a heart of humility. Help us, Lord, to see that in your word this morning, to see what you have to teach us about the example that you have given us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Better turn this on too. Well, I just point it that way now? Anyway, okay, cool. Uh, so, 1 Peter 5, verses 5 to 7. Let's read through it. It's going to be, I think I need glasses. Kind of, kind of ironic, really, given the message this morning. Okay, so, <clears throat> in the same way, you who are younger, let me try this, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Let's get right into it. Verse 5, the first part of verse 5. I'm going to use the Bible because I'm actually having trouble seeing it. Um, <clears throat> so, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. I think this verse is pretty challenging to a modern audience, particularly a, a modern young audience. One of the problems is that probably everyone here thinks they're young still. Um, you could blame the 1960s for, for way, thinking that way. Um, there was a, such a cultural shift in the way that people looked at the differences between generations. And I wonder whether since the 1960s, particularly in the West, this view of being young or old has become a very relative term. And the natural order, the natural hierarchy that used to exist in Western culture, that still exists in many uh, cultures uh, around the world, but not so much in the West, 
that natural order, that old hierarchy, was undermined by the student protests of the 1960s and by the sort of the rebellious uh, political and social forces that were at work. And so now you get people who are probably, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm closer to 40 than, 40 than I am to 30, wearing, wearing ripped jean shorts. Um, that doesn't sound unusual, but I think, I think, you know, a few decades ago that was unusual. Uh, you couldn't walk around um, sort of acting like you were 21 still when you were 60. But increasingly, we see that kind of shift in our culture. I put this up here because I like memes, and maybe that means I'm young as well. This first part of verse 5 um, is all about this antagonism, or combating this antagonism that exists between the generations, between those who consider themselves young and those who consider themselves not so young. Those who are younger and those who are elder. I know it's a bit, bit, uh, bit edgy, that one. Um, so these terms in Greek, what are they? Younger and elder. Um, first of all, younger, so this word neos. Uh, sorry, I couldn't get all the little um, accents and things on the Greek word there, but um, neos, this idea of being uh, new. We get the idea neo, or the word neo from neos in English. This idea of being new, of being sort of brisk and lively, um, maybe even agitated. And uh, so it's the sense of sort of being energetic, maybe a little bit unsettled, having all this energy, ready to go, ready to do stuff. Well, the word elder that's used here is presbyteros. And you get from this word sort of presbyterian or uh, presbytery or whatever you like, these words that we use um, or have been used in the church, especially with denominations, but the idea of also um, eldership. And the word elder here, presbyteros, is much what you'd expect it to be. It's uh, someone who's experienced, who's more advanced in years, but both these terms are relative. They're relative to each other. They don't give you an exact you know, numerical uh, cutoff point or, or dividing line. You're not younger if you're under 40 and an elder if you're over 40. And the Bible's you know, pretty clear about that. Um, there are certainly contextual clues that we're given when these kinds of words are used in the New Testament. Uh, typically, an elder is at that point in life where they're married and they have children and, um, and they have some, some standing somehow in their community, particularly the community of, of, of faith. And someone who's younger may well be unmarried. They may not have any kids. But of course, back then, in those days, you could get, get married pretty young. You could have kids pretty young. You didn't wait until you, know, you were in your late 30s or even 40 to have kids like is often the case today. So it's a relative term, not relative in the sense that we might use I'm young today as a relative term. If you're 60 and you sort of still think of yourself as young, you know, yes, medical science has advanced a long way, um, 
but you're not really, historically speaking, young. By, by today's standards, your uh, life expectancy has increased greatly, and that's a wonderful thing. But you have to accept that there is a point, there is a moment, or it may be at least not a moment, but, but a gradual sort of shift that occurs at some point in your life when people start deferring to you. And, and that could be a clue. Could be a clue that you're not younger anymore. You're, you're an elder. I think this is a good clue here. This is a test. Now, hopefully, you know what that word means, because some of you who are younger probably won't know what that word means. The real test, though, is not whether you know what it means, but whether you think you've ever used that word in everyday uh, conversation. Have you ever used that word in everyday conversation? Put your hand up. Okay. I'm not going to make any, any uh, judgment based on what I see out there in the audience, but if you've used that word in everyday conversation at some point in your life, you most likely are not in the first category. You're not in the younger category. It could be that you're an anomaly, a statistical anomaly, but that is apparently a test, a linguistic test used to kind of gauge whether someone is in the younger generation or the older generation. There are lots of others, but we won't go through them. Dungarees, do you know what they are? Some of you don't. They're jeans, denim jeans. Typically sort of working jeans, you know, for um, people who, who are laboring or whatever, but this is an old-fashioned term, and some people still use it. So, which are you? Well, you don't have to decide this morning, but it's important to recognize as well that it isn't just a matter of which generation you belong to. It's not just about whether you're uh, you know, a millennial or Generation X or a baby boomer or what's the next one after that? Greatest generation? What do they call them again? The, the, those who went through the war and they met maybe the, the uh, Great Depression as well. They were, they were known as the greatest generation in America. Um, I don't know if they gave themselves that name. It would be ironic, wouldn't it, as well? But... Uh, which, which generation are you? Well, it doesn't really matter so much because if you're younger, it's in relationship, or it's in relation, I should say, to those who are older than you. So it's all relative in that, that sense. Uh, I know in, in South Korea, I've heard this before, that uh, if you have a car accident, and uh, say, for instance, the other person, um, they get out and you're, you're sort of discussing, okay, well, uh, who's at fault here? The first question isn't, um, you know, do you have insurance? But the first question is, how old are you? Because it doesn't matter if you caused the accident or they caused the accident. What matters is who's the elder of the two. If they're older, you have to apologize to them. It doesn't matter that, that they caused the accident, you have to apologize to them. That's how important it is in the culture in South Korea. Now, there might be someone here from South Korea or who's been there that will correct me on this, but I have heard this from a South Korean. It certainly used to be done um, in, in, their, in their culture. So the idea of, uh, of this natural hierarchy does still exist in some places, but it is relative. And in fact, there have been cases in South Korea where people were trying to ascertain exactly how old the other person is. And so... Um, they wouldn't, wouldn't decide who had to apologize until they'd worked out exactly how old the other person was. And sometimes, if it was the same year, then they would say, well, what month? And then, you know, in some really rare cases, well, what date? 
Because you could be the same age. You could be, uh, you know, uh, 45 and um, the other person's 45. So who's going to be the older one? Maybe just by a few days. But regardless of the answer, or sorry, regardless of the, um, of the, of the cause of the accident, whoever is older is apologized to by the younger. But the question is this. Is verse 5, especially the, the first part here, is this just Peter getting old and annoyed? Is this just Peter saying, you know, I've kind of, I've kind of got fed up. I'm up to here with all these young guys coming around telling me, you know, how we ought to run the church. I mean, you know, for goodness sake, I was there with Jesus. I saw it all. I went through it all. So why do these young guys want to come and tell me how to run things? I don't think that, that's what Peter was going for. I don't think Peter had an issue with, you know, zealous young people. I don't think he was just becoming more conservative in his old age. But, you know, what is it they say about, um, about political you know, preferences, that people um, are heartless if they um, aren't a liberal before you know, the age of 25 or 30 and, um, and, uh, and foolish if they remain a liberal after 25 or 30, something like that. Um, I don't think it's that natural shift that people have towards being more conservative in their old age and liking tradition. So what is it then? Well, I think we have to go to to 1 Timothy to really kind of get into this idea because it'd be easy to say, well, you just need to fall in line. You just need to um, do what you're told because the word that's used, um, hupotassos, the, the Greek word here, for submit or humble yourself, um, you know, or subject yourself, is this idea of falling in line or knowing, knowing the, the natural order of things, the natural place where you fit, whether it's in terms of age or hierarchy or whatever. But I don't think it's this idea that you need to simply conform. It's not about conforming, about you know, giving up your independence of, of, of thought, your will, your decision-making ability, and going with what is expected from those who are older. And, and Paul says in, uh, in 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 and 12, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and impurity. Paul was an elder man at this point. Timothy was a younger man. We don't know exactly how old either of them was, but we know that that was the case, that Paul was the elder and, and Timothy was the younger. And Timothy had a great responsibility. He carried a great weight on his shoulders. He was, you know, leading uh, churches. He was teaching and pastoring and um, and acting, in a sense, as a spiritual elder to many people, particularly um, you know, in, in, in places where this traditional hierarchy was important to people. And so, on the one hand, while Paul, while Paul says to, to Timothy, you don't need to, um, you know, you don't need to sort of throw out tradition as such. You don't have to throw out culture when it comes to being deferential 
to older people, you also don't have to be intimidated because of your youth. Don't let people look down on you because you are younger. Know that they have something to teach you, though, if they're older, perhaps through their experience. That they will have some wisdom that has been sort of gathered the hard way or gained the hard way. But the particularly important idea here is that, as Paul's saying to Timothy, you can set an example no matter what age you are. It is the the power of Christ living in you, living through you, that will win people over regardless of their age. And it doesn't hurt to be respectful, deferential when it comes to those who are elder. It goes on in in, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, to say, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Know that when you are in the church, you are in a family. And you ought to see it that way. Now, of course, that might depend a little bit, you know, how you see it. It might depend on how uh, you were raised, on the kind of family you came from. Maybe you came from a family where your parents, they gave, you know, orders and you carried them out straight away. You didn't argue. You didn't question. And maybe that sort of sense of uh, being told what to do really riled you up. But the idea with God's family and within the church is this, is this idea that when you have a loving father, it's easy to listen. It's easy to obey. Now, human beings will uh, make mistakes. And so it's important that um, we recognize this. As Paul points out in those, in those chapters in 1 Timothy, an attitude of reverence towards one's elders does not mean mindless conformity to a worldly hierarchy. You can challenge, but just remember to do it respectfully. And he says to Timothy, exhort the older person. Don't rebuke them harshly. Exhort them. That means to challenge. It means to um, kind of you know, G them up, to uh, get them motivated, to get them moving, but in a positive way. And I think that's why example is so important. You start with example, and through your own speech, through your own actions, through your own love and faith, the way you live, you'll remind those who are older that this is a dynamic and exciting faith And people shouldn't lose sight of that just because their bones are getting a bit creaky, just because they've seen it all before. I remember uh, when I was growing up, and I might have shared this once before, I don't know, but uh, my grandfather taught my dad and my dad taught me that it's okay to, uh, to argue about anything, argue about anything at all at the dinner table. But there are three rules. There are are three rules that you must follow. The first one is, you must use evidence. The second one is, 
Don't repeat yourself. I heard you the first time. Find a new way of saying it. And, and the third way is be gracious at all times. A lot of people know how to argue at the dinner table, but I think the art uh, or the character trait that is so lacking in our, in our culture today, in our world today, is that of grace when it comes to challenging people. Can you be gracious when you challenge someone, when you question what they're doing? In some cultures, it is completely disrespectful to ask even a question of your elder. It's certainly disrespectful in many cultures to challenge your elder. And, you know, as uh, a lot of countries have um, liberalized or, you know, westernized, there has been this temptation for younger generations to say, well, that was the old ways, but we're democratic now. And when you're democratic, you know, you don't need to simply defer to those who are older than you. So it, it's so important that, um, that we understand this, that in the church, it's democratic in one sense, but it's not when we see who our ultimate leader is. And that's not the pastor. Though we have great pastors, he's looking at Brad at the moment, um, we have great pastors, but he's not our ultimate leader. He's someone simply who points us to the ultimate leader. Uh, this idea of exhorting graciously rather than rebuking harshly, it's so lacking. It's so lacking in our world today. And often it's lacking in the church at large. Going back to verse 5, and just jumping a little bit ahead here, Peter quotes from Proverbs 3, verse 34. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, what's important about this is, if you go through Proverbs, and you start right back in chapter 1, you see the kind of lines that are being used. And these lines are used you know, uh, repeatedly throughout Proverbs. Take this one in verse 8 of chapter 1. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. This kind of uh, phrase gets used again and again. Listen, my son. It's all about this, this uh, generational kind of uh, lesson or instruction that's being given throughout the book of Proverbs. So I don't think it's a mistake that Peter goes and, and quotes from Proverbs as he's talking about this younger, older um, interaction or dynamic. The, um, I think he was a Supreme Court Justice in America, um, a famous, famous jurist, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. He said, the young man knows the rules, but the old man knows the exceptions. It is true that if you stop as a young person and you actually bother to listen to the stories that people who are older than you have to tell, there will be things that you learn that will save you a lot of heartache. Um, too often, we look forward to making mistakes 
And we say, well, don't worry, I'll learn something from them. When you're young, it's easy to say that. When you're older, it's bittersweet. Or just bitter. When you've made those mistakes, you can't always come back from them. There's a lot of damage that's done. You might have a lot of energy when you're younger and you know, you're rearing to go and you're rearing to get out there and do stuff. But you can expend a great deal of energy and you can hurt yourself and other people in the process if you don't have wisdom. And so, when you're older, you have some lessons that you have learned. You know the exceptions. It's easy to learn the rules, but you know about the exceptions and you know that things don't always go the way you think they're going to go. So just going back now to the middle of verse 5. Peter says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. This is really the theme of this morning. What I was wearing up here was important to make this point. But how do you clothe uh, yourselves with humility? How do we clothe ourselves with humility? I don't know if you've ever seen um, My Big Fat Gypsy Wedding. That, I think, is from, from that show. Um, these gypsies or travellers, as they're known in, in the UK, um, they're very fond of flashy, you know, ostentatious, uh, over-the-top weddings. They go all in and they spend huge amounts of money um, wearing these really sort of garish sort of costumes and, and outfits. But how do we as Christians wear humility? How do we put on some garment of humility? Is that not simply dressing up? Is that not uh, assuming something or, or trying to be something that we're not? Well, the idea here is really interesting. And again, you have to go back to the Greek to, I think, fully appreciate the words that are being used here. Again, I'm going to do my best to pronounce this, but I'm going to probably only say it once. Um, Eg kombumai. Clothe yourselves. This idea that Peter's using is related to this other word, eg komboma, a garment worn by slaves when laboring. It's like a, a tunic or a, uh, a garment that you would put on and you would pull together. It had a sort of a string that you would pull together. And in fact, when I preached earlier in the series back in uh, chapter 1, in verse 13, Peter talks about gird up the loins of your mind. Uh, will prepare your minds for action. Roll up your, the, uh, the sleeves of your mind. These are different ways of saying it. But again, related to this idea, Peter was a guy who was a doer. He was an active guy. He was a fisherman. He'd worked with his hands. He was a guy who knew how to put in a full day's work. And when he was at a loss to know what to do with himself, just after the resurrection, he was like, well, guys, I'm going fishing. I need to keep myself busy. As a mature believer, though, when he's writing First Peter, he's able to say this in a different way. He's able to say, guys, the secret to the Christian life, one of the secrets is recognizing that you've just got to roll your sleeves up and get stuck in. Character, as a Christian, emerges is revealed as we do just that, as we roll up our sleeves and get stuck in, as we put on our old work clothes. I love wearing this jersey. 
I've worn it a lot, as you can tell. I feel very comfortable in it. And that's the great thing. I'm sure you've all got that pair of, you know, old clothes at home that you love to slip into when you're doing some work around the place or, you know, just in the evening when you've, you've done, you know, you're home from work and, and you just want to relax. You don't care about, you know, getting, getting food on or staining it or whatever. You don't care about, about tearing it so much. It's, it's just something that, that is, is unpretentious. It's comfortable. It's who you are. And you can work away in these clothes and not worry about getting dirty. Well, this is, this is really this you know, vital idea at the heart of this passage. Not just what you're wearing, but in fact the attitude with which you work. And when you slip into that sort of state of mind, that attitude, it's easy to work. It's easy to serve. And that's why it's important to go back to Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 37. And just this verse in particular, verse 35, I'll read to you. This, in the context... You know, the, the disciples have been arguing about who's the greatest amongst them. And Jesus responds to them. He says, sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And he goes on to talk about the little children. And you've got to receive the little children. You know. It's this it's this idea here of being ready to pour out everything you have, to offer it all up. To be humble, to be down in the lowest place in the hierarchy. To surrender to all the expectations that the world um, has you imagining you deserve. And being ready to roll your sleeves up as a slave, as a servant of the Most High God, and do what's required. And I think so important as we go through First Peter is the idea that servanthood is synonymous with suffering. You know, suffering, the word suffering keeps coming up again and again throughout this, this letter. But these are not, you know, we're not talking about people here who are, who are wealthy, who have great status, who are suffering. We're talking about people who have voluntarily submitted themselves to servanthood. It's the idea of being a, um, uh, almost a slave, really, or a, a bond servant. Someone who has said, I am yours, Lord, to do what you will with. Uh, the uh, scholar, New Testament scholar, B. Van Alderen, said this about this particular um, passage and idea. This paradox also found in Romans 5 and Philippians, of rejoicing and suffering is a unique feature of Christianity which the natural man cannot accept. It goes against everything in us. It goes against the flesh. It certainly contradicts the message of the world. To dress down, to submit ourselves to situations, to, to, to work, um, to conditions that are less than desirable. But it's absolutely essential. And in fact, it's, it's part of what makes the faith that we have so exciting and dynamic. It's only when you are ready to put on 
those old clothes, to roll up the sleeves and get stuck in, to put others before yourself, to surrender you know, the, the claims that you have on, on, on position, social status, on hierarchy. It's only then that you really begin to discover the joy that comes with the Christian life. So verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. When uh, I, used to, I used to work in Australia quite a few years ago, and uh, um, I was trained as a lifeguard. It was part of my job as I was an outdoor instructor. And in training me as a lifeguard, there are a lot of different techniques that you learn. You think before you go into the training, oh, it's pretty simple, you know, I just have to be a strong swimmer. I have to go out there, learn CPR once I get them back to shore. Um, you know, I've got the bases covered. But no, in fact, there's quite a bit of technique involved, and anyone who's done lifeguard training will understand this. Uh, where I was trained in Australia, they said that one of the most important things is when you get out there, rather than rushing right up to the person who's in distress and sort of you know, paddling over and saying, right, grabbing them and trying to pull them back in, you have to ensure, first of all, that they're ready to submit. Because people in a panic state, which they can often be in, will try and drown you even though you've come to save them. They will try and, 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 and grab onto you and pull themselves up out of the water and almost a bit like a mongoose, you know, running up to a high point out in the savannah. Uh, they will try and get on top of you to keep their head above water. They will drown you in the process if you let them. So a number of techniques are used by lifeguards to make sure that people are prepared to submit before they get towed back in. I had to do this once. I was working in Greece in a, in a similar kind of role, and I was, I was about to head into town one day. It was on my, my day off. Uh, I dressed up, ready to go into town. I was walking to where the bus stop was. Um, oh, no, I was, no, that's right. I was hitchhiking, actually. I was, I was standing there by, by the roadside, and um, I heard someone out in the water calling, and then I, heard, I saw someone on the beach you know, waving to me and saying, help, help. So I ran down and I, and I said, what's the problem? And she said, my, my elderly mother is out there in the water and she's, she's drowning. She can't get back to shore. So I said, okay. So I you know, um, was still wearing my shorts, actually, but I, I jumped. Um, of course I was wearing my shorts. Um, I was wearing my shorts. That's, that's what I was wearing that day. I took my T-shirt off. I kept my shorts on. Um, I swam out there. Um, I got to this old lady and, uh, and I, I kind of said to her in my, my broken Greek, which is really pretty, pretty terrible, but um, I said to her in my broken Greek, um, you know, relax, relax, it's okay. And so she was sort of lying there on her back, and she was trying to, trying to sort of reach out to me, and I said, no, 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 just relax, relax. And so she kind of kept laying there on her back, and it was only when she calmed down enough that I could, I could grab her by the arm and just slowly tow her back in. She was actually able to float on her back in that position because she'd calmed down enough to trust that I was going to get her back to shore. I eventually got her back to shore and her, her adult daughter, who'd been calling for my help on the beach, she couldn't swim, but she said, thank you, and then they left. So I was left sort of standing there, I was soaking, I didn't have a towel, um, put my T-shirt back on, I still had my shorts on, of course, and uh, I, I headed back up and I, I somehow managed to hitchhike 
um, into town with soaking wet shorts. Spent the day there and came back. But the important thing, I guess, is, is that if we don't surrender, if we don't submit in that moment, we don't say, I'm ready to be towed in, I'm ready to be rescued, then we can't be lifted up. We can't be delivered. And God promises that if we surrender, if we die to self, we will be raised up in a new life, the life that Christ offers us. Romans 8, 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, Paul speaks of things that are to come, but we can also glory right now in the things that he's given us, even while we go through these hard times, while we suffer. And finally, verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. There's a wonderful um, version of this, a song that is sung in, uh, in Africa, and um, I've, I've heard it a number of times. A Nigerian first uh, taught me the song, and I'm not going to sing it to you. Um, but also some other, other friends uh, from Africa, from other countries in Africa, they sang the song. And they all had a testimony. They all had a story to share, or many stories to share, about the sufferings, about what it meant to submit yourself to your situation. Knowing that Christ had a hold of you. He was going to look after you. He was going to take you through it. And they could sing the song and it went, you know, cast your burdens unto Jesus for he cares for you. And then the, the chorus is higher, 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 lift Jesus higher. I see some people recognizing the song who also happen to be from Africa. Um, and then the other, other part is, you know, lower, lower, um, lower, lower, stamp Satan lower. They sing the song with, you know, incredible gusto. And they mean every word of it. But there are people like Watchman Nee, and I'm going to finish with this. Watchman Nee, you might have heard of him. He was a, a Chinese Christian leader who um, was about 70 when he passed away. But he'd spent the last 22 years of his life in prison in communist China for being a leader in the church, for being someone who was uncompromising in his determination to share the gospel. 22 years in prison for his faith. He had opportunities throughout to renounce his faith, to go back on what he'd said, but he didn't. He never gave in. He continued graciously to preach to the people who were his jailers. And he didn't stop loving them. And he said this, and I'm just going to read this to you from his book, The Normal Christian Life, which is an extraordinary title given his situation. He knew that sometimes the normal Christian life looks like a prison cell. He said this, When the Galilean boy brought his, uh, brought his bread to the Lord, what did the Lord do with it? He broke it. God will always break what is offered to him. He breaks what he takes. But after breaking it, he blesses and uses it to meet the needs of others. After you give yourself to the Lord, he begins to break what was offered to him. Everything seems to go wrong. And you protest and find fault with the ways of God. But to stay there is to be no more than just a broken vessel. No good for the world because you have gone too far for the world to use you. And no good for God either because you have not gone far enough for him to use you. You are out of gear with the world and you have a controversy with God. 
This is the tragedy of many a Christian. My giving of myself to the Lord must be an initial fundamental act. Then, day by day, I must go on uh, giving to him, not finding fault with his use of me, but accepting with praise even what the flesh finds hard. That way lies true enrichment. I am the Lord's, and now no longer reckon myself to be my own, but acknowledge in everything his ownership and authority. That is the attitude God delights in, and to maintain it is true consecration. I do not consecrate myself to be a missionary or a preacher. I consecrate myself to, do God, to, sorry, to God to do his will where I am, be it in school, office, or kitchen, or wherever, wherever he may, in his wisdom, send me. Whatever he ordains for me is sure to be the very best, for nothing but good can come to those who are wholly his. May we always be possessed by the consciousness that we are not our own. He said that while in prison. He wrote those words while in prison. And he understood this, and I want to leave you with this thought. That in humbling yourself to the situation and ultimately being humbled by the mighty hand of God, when you become his, so do your problems. And so verse 7 could not ring more true. Watch many had 22 years in prison, and he could testify to that statement with absolute conviction. When you become his, so do your problems. So when you give those burdens over to Jesus, he's not simply saying, yeah, I guess you know, I'll take care of that. He's saying, I own them. You're mine, so any problems that you have become my problems. Any burdens become my burdens. Any anxiety that you have becomes my problem to deal with. And he can deal with it. Right, Robin, you guys want to come up? Um, as the, uh, the band come up, I just want to close now with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we have the testimony of Incredible people like Watchman Nee. Incredible not because they were born that way, but because they were born again and became that way through their faith in you. And every day they had to surrender, they had to acknowledge that they were inadequate. But in doing so, they recognized that in becoming slaves, servants of yours, that everything that they had whether it was good or bad, became yours as well. And that everything that you have became theirs. And so too, Lord, we pray that we would know this reality, that everything that we have becomes yours. And so much more, amazingly, everything that you have becomes ours. We thank you, Lord. Please humble us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.